looks like you have it all figured out. You got all them fancy things. And that big old trophy house. And all you really wanted was a little bit more. And then more turned into more. Well, there ain't nothing wrong with a little bit of money. But it might do you some good if you went hungry now. See, around here, the greedy man ain't nothing but a fool. And his money ain't nothing but a cemetery tool. And around here, the greedy man just won't do. Around here, the greedy man is you. I bet you wasn't singing that one as I read it. That is Greedy Man by a band called Poor Man's Poison. Didn't know anything of them before I found that lyric. Don't know anything more to tell you. But I thought the lyric fit well. See, we're in Ecclesiastes and Solomon has grabbed us by the shoulders and he is shaking us and saying, nothing here will satisfy you. Nothing here will sustain your joy. Everything is here by God's creation to be used for His glory, but not to be worshipped. So we're to look above the sun for meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction because nothing under the sun will satisfy you. It was never meant to. He has told us that everything here is hebel. Everything here is what a lot of translations call vanity. But we've talked about that and that word just means vapor. It's just, it's just a puff of breath. It won't last. It goes away. It's not permanent. It's quickly gone. So it won't satisfy. So look to God and live for Him. Today we're going to look at verses 4 through 8 in chapter 4 and talk about ruining work. Ruining work. And this is the second sermon on work, as I mentioned. The first one was working above the sun. And there we looked at the frustration and lack of lasting profit from our work under the sun. The fact that everything we'd work for would end up going to someone else. And Solomon talked about how that was futile. Or puff, or hebel. We also talked about rejoicing in our hardships, in the hardships of work, knowing that our God is sovereign and in control and to seek our meaning and purpose above the sun. And today we're going to look more at the heart of the matter, more at Solomon's, another one of his observations. As he looks around at life in a fallen world, he says he sees covetousness. A big part of life in a fallen world is this world being filled with covetousness. We're going to look deeper into the problem of covetousness, covetousness this morning. Main point, since covetousness ruins work and life, seek to worship God in everything you do and trust that He will supply everything you need. It doesn't glorify God. It doesn't help you. It is a sin to be repented of. And yet Solomon is real when he says he looks out into the world and he sees it everywhere. Since covetousness ruins work and life, seek to worship God in everything you do and trust that He will supply everything you need. First, first of all, covetousness ruins work. Yes, life in general, we're focusing on work this morning. But it man-centered motivation ruins work. Our default setting is to be under the sunset focused, to be man-centered in our motivation. We need a reset and recalibration every day to look above the sun. But man-centered motivation ruins everything, including work. And see, what we see in this text as we look at it is, is Solomon's going to give us three expressions of covetousness. Envy, laziness, and greed. And those are all expressions, those all flow out of a covetous heart. So first we'll look, at, uh, we'll look at envy. And it's just ruined work with envy. Verse 4. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's 
envy or the, the bad side of jealousy, sinful jealousy. All of the advantage I see, people striving to climb the ladder, they're stepping over one another. All they want to do is get to be the best, to be at the top for the glory that they think that will bring them and for the satisfaction they think that it will bring them. What is envy? He's like, said, envy is driving a lot of the things that I see. Man's skill is developed because of his envy and his, 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 his achievement in work. A lot, a lot of times, not every single time, but most times, a lot of times in a fallen world is driven by his envy. So what, what is envy? You could say it's the, the desire to be number one. But think about envy as a, as a sin, the way God's Word talks about it. Envy is discontentment with another person's advantages. Discontentment with another person's advantages, success, and possessions. Again, it's the bad side of jealousy. You'll hear it expressed, it's not fair that they have more than I do. Never, never mind that they work their fingers to the bone to get it. Envy doesn't rejoice in another person's promotion. I should have gotten that promotion. It's a strong desire to be the first, to be the best, to be the highest. But it's flowing out of a man-centered motivation. Much of our labor and skill come from competition. Listen, a lot of us are competitive. Some of us are overly competitive. Some of us can't even play a game at home without losing our minds if we don't win. Notice I said us. Every time I dribbled a basketball, I wanted to win. Whatever your game was and is, it can reveal our hearts. We don't win, we get upset. My dad bowled with my mom until she beat him. I'm not joking. He never bowled with her again. If you can't take and learn from defeat, if you can't be humble in defeat, it's revealing something in our hearts. For selfish reasons, we want to be the best. And we're angry and unhappy and discontent when others are better. Think of the biblical examples, and I won't go into a lot of detail this morning, but the Bible starts with some outflow of envy. Think of Cain and Abel. Why did Cain kill Abel? Yeah. Abel's offering was accepted. Cain mad about that. Envy led to murder. Cain murdered Abel. How about Joseph and his brothers? Now there, you can question some of the wisdom whether or not he should have been so obviously shown to be the favorite and all of that. And then you can question maybe the wisdom of him sharing his dreams at that point. But his brothers envied him. They hated him. And as soon as they could, they got rid of him. Thankfully, they sold him into slavery. He ends up saving them. Great picture of Jesus in Joseph. But his brothers were envious. How about Jesus? Greatest example of what man does when he's envious. When Pilate, when the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate, Pilate perceived something. It says in Mark 15, 10, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. And that was true. The bigger the crowds got around Jesus, the more envious and jealous in a bad way they got of him and the more they wanted to take him out. He didn't make them feel good about themselves. Nor should he. See, envy is a killer. Envy is a really bad motivator. Envy is not a recipe for joy and satisfaction. Envy is what put our one of the things put our Savior on the cross. And envy ruins work. If I am doing my best for me, 
if I'm trying to achieve the best for me, I'm at least short-sighted. I'm at least short-sighted. I'm just living under the sun, if that's my motivation. If I'm doing my best just for those around me, we haven't made it to the proper vision and motivation yet. Those are proper, but they're subsequent. They're underneath higher motivation. Solomon is saying, one of the things I see that is hevel, that is, that is frustrating, that is things that you, you just wish were not so, one of the things I see in this world is envy motivating man and hurting a lot of people in his path. He says it's vanity and it's striving after the wind. You know, it is, it is as foolish as chasing the wind to think you will always be the best at anything. You've heard it said all records are made to be broken. Somebody's going to come along and be younger and stronger and faster, smarter at some point. You may make it to the top on an under the sun level. But if you're doing it for self-promotion, it's vanity and striving after the wind. And someday you'll realize you never really hit that tape. So he says, envy ruins work. But look at this, laziness ruins work. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Refuses to work, so what else is he going to eat? I mean, that's a pretty vivid picture, isn't it? The only thing he's going to have to eat is himself. And metaphorically, he's eating himself as he is lazy. We ruin work with laziness. Laziness and covetousness go together. Laziness and greed go together. Don't think the lazy person is not greedy or covetous. They go together like hand in glove. The lazy person wants what others have. He just refuses to work hard for it. He values comfort and ease over hard work, so he looks for handouts. You have it, so you should just give it to me, so I don't have to earn it. I've said this before, parents, please don't raise your children that way. Kids get mad at me, you'll get over it. Your, your parents shouldn't just be giving you stuff. You should have responsibility. As you're young, it's smaller responsibility, but teach, be taught to work. Never be just looking for handouts. I have a whole generation now who wants to everything given to them. They want to take what belongs to others and think that's just. Laziness is a path of destruction. It should be frustrating. You will never be satisfied ultimately by it. Few things from the word. Uh, Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of the sluggard, that means the lazy person. The soul of the sluggard, it's pretty vivid, isn't it? Sounds like a we call slugs, snails and stuff, but anyway. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. See, in in in, in the old world, there was no safety net for lazy people. If you could work, you had to work. Nobody was going to feed you. Now, certainly for disabled and, and needy in that way, there wasn't a safety net. If you, if, you, if you refuse to work, you shouldn't eat. That's what the New Testament says. The one who will not work shall not eat. Proverbs 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and doesn't hold back. See, so let him who steals steal no longer, but work with his hands that he might have something to give, the Bible says. I've told you all this before. I was raised to be lazy. My mom was, worked her tail off in... in in a tobacco farm and swore that her children would never have to work like that. So we were given everything. And it was out of love and coming from a good place, but it was devastating. Because when you finally have to grow up and realize somebody else is not going to pay your bills, it's hard. 
especially when you have to do that in your 20s. Let's learn that in our before 10 and ongoing. The world doesn't give us things. We have to work. See, both the lazy and the envious are focused primarily on self. It's about me and what I deserve and what I can get and how good I am. I desire what's here. And that's my motivation. Look at the last one, greed. I'll come back to verse 6 in a minute. Ruin work with greed. This is the greedy, unsatisfied person. Look at 7 and 8. I saw another vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling or depriving myself of pleasure? Some translations might say that he does ask himself that, and I believe this is the better way to go with it. This is also vanity and unhappiness. He keeps his nose to the grindstone, although he has way more than he needs. He keeps working. He's, he has been so focused on riches that he's lost his relationships. It's just him, and he wants more, 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 because it never satisfied. Dr. Shaw quoted a survey that was done among poor up to rich through middle class and ask him how much did they need. And across the board, pretty much, it was everybody thought they needed at least 25% more to be happy. And that's just a moving scale. No matter how much you get, you always want more. Satisfied. Look at it. He's never satisfied with his riches. He is a greedy, mean, unsatisfied person. I mean, think of Ebenezer Scrooge, right? at least before the end of the movie. Dickens, A Christmas Carol. He's an embittered miser. He's miserable, unsatisfied, and greedy at first. If you haven't read it or seen the movie, I'll let you do that. Even though he had no dependence and had plenty, just kept the nose to the grindstone and kept the nose of those around him to the grindstone. No joy, just pursuit. More. More, more. Greed is a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more things than other people have. All irrespective of need. I must be greater and richer no matter what it costs me or what it costs you. If I'm a greedy person, it's my world and you're just living here to serve me. And when you quit serving me, I will go somewhere else. See, Solomon is seeing big problems here. But what he's seeing manifest in a number of different ways goes all the way back to one root sin and one root command, which is covetousness, which the Bible identifies as idolatry. Why? Because you're looking other than, to other than God for happiness, satisfaction, joy. You're making something under the sun, God. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. Yeah, I'm going to say it. Sexual immorality. There's one outlet for sex in Christ. A man and a woman who are married. All the rest is sexual immorality. A man and a woman in marriage is the only outlet for the gift and blessing of sexual intimacy. The rest is a perversion of that and is sinful and will be judged. No matter how many people think it won't. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Put to death covetousness. Don't be an envious or lazy 
or greedy. And in other ways it manifests itself. Covetous person. Why? Well, it certainly dishonors God and He will judge it. But it's not good for you. It will never bring the satisfaction and joy that you're looking for. See, Solomon has looked around under the sun and all he sees is covetousness and people chasing after the wind. They're trying to find happiness in the hevel, in the puff, in the temporal world instead of in God. What is the Tenth Commandment? You either, I'm, I'm trusting you just don't want to say it out loud. It wasn't a rhetorical question. Thou shalt not covet. And think about this. The first commandment and the tenth commandment are just bookends of the whole. Whenever we violate one of the others, we are violating those two. And covetous flowers, covetousness flowers in dishonoring parents, in murder, in adultery, in stealing, in lies. Covetousness is having a God other than the true God, whether it be yourself or things around you in this world under the sun that you think is going to make you happy. In one sense, the first commandment and the last commandment are sort of saying the same thing. Let me just pause right here and make a recommendation. Read Watson's book on the Ten Commandments. Puritan, yes. Watson. Thomas, I lost his first name. It's Thomas, right? And I know that better than I know my name, but it just goes away sometimes. Thomas Watson on the Ten Commandments. I promise you, fathers, read that. Read it to your children. Read it with your children. Explain it to them. You will understand the law in a Christ-centered way and be able to more effectively live and share the gospel. But think about the Ten Commandment. See, whatever I look to for satisfaction is my God no matter what I sing on Sunday. The Ten Commandment provides an x-ray for our hearts. Not, just, not our physical heart, right? Our motivations, our deepest desires and longings. The Ten Commandment just lays us open and shows us what's really going on. It exposes and curbs in the life of the believer the restless, greedy, envious fountain of the human heart. Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. And they are. We're looking for satisfaction, but we're looking in all the wrong places a lot of times. Coveting, coveting says this. Coveting says that God's provision for me and His decisions on my behalf are insufficient for my happiness. Augustine very simply defined covetousness or coveting as wanting more than enough. Desiring more than enough. When I covet, I disagree with God about what I should have. See, God is sovereign and in control. And if you needed more today, you'd have it. You have everything you need right now. If your focus is in the right place, if your heart is in the right place, you have everything you need right now to be joyful and satisfied and hopeful. And are there hard things in your life? Certainly. But God is bigger than that. He's put them in the proper context and He's, He's done everything necessary to satisfy our hearts. When I'm coveting, I disagree with God about what I should have. We like to try to tell God about how it should be. You've heard me quote Anonymous. Anonymous says a lot of really cool things. Have you? I wish I could find Anonymous and talk to them. <laughs> Anonymous said, if you gave me God's power, you would see how much I change. But if you gave me His wisdom too, you would see how I left everything exactly the same. God is working out His sovereignty, His providence, not for you to be comfortable, but for you to be holy, for you to be like Jesus, for you to be satisfied in the right place, which is in the Savior. What can I do with my covetous heart? How can I be delivered? And that's assuming you want to be delivered. But if you do, there's one who came. There is one who came to save His people. 
And He didn't just jump straight on the cross. But He was born and laid in a manger. He was born the Creator, the Lawgiver, the Judge. He was born under His own law. And He lived under His own law and fulfilled all righteousness. He never sinned in thought, word, or deed. He was perfect. He never coveted. He was satisfied in His relationship with His Father. He said it was His food to do His will. It was His joy. Why did Christ live for so long before He went to the cross? He was the second Adam. He's fixing what Adam had broken. He was fulfilling the commands that Adam had broken and that you and I have broken. For the glory of the Father and the good of His people. Why? Because that record of perfect obedience is what would be imputed to or credited to His people when He brought them to faith in Him. But see, he, he deserved only blessing. He kept the law. He was the only righteous person who had no sin and yet He died on the cross. Why? Because He took our guilt upon Himself. He was the Lamb of God pictured all through the Old Testament who would die for the sins of His people. And He took our guilt upon Himself and He went to the cross and He drank the cup of God's just wrath toward our sin he drank it dry. Why do you think he sweat blood before he went to the cross? He literally sweat blood. That's a literal medical thing. Because he knew he was facing the condemnation that we deserve. He knew he was about to answer to a holy God. He knew that he was going to take... We don't even understand this. But if you'll think... He knew he was going to take the equivalent of eternal hell for all of his people upon himself on that cross in a matter of hours drink it dry. He could only do that because he was God, the God-man, God and man. But he did that. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day. And he reigns to see his gospel go to the end of this earth, to see his people transformed into his image and to take us all the way home to the new heavens and the new earth. For God so loved the world, kids, he did what? He gave his only begotten son. Why? That whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. How am I delivered from my record of covetousness and my deserving of condemnation? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through God working in me so that I hear the Gospel and I believe it and empowering me to turn from self and my pursuing my own way and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. All of us fall short. We have all sinned. There's not a righteous person on earth who always does righteous things and never sins. We'll see that in chapter 7, verse 20. And we are justified, declared righteous, redeemed, reconciled freely as a gift through faith in Jesus. Without Jesus, you will remain covetous and miserable. Without Jesus, you will answer for your sin on your own before a holy God. See, it's one of the things Solomon keeps reminding us of is judgment is coming. And because He sacrificed His Son, read Acts 17, 30 and 31, because God sent His Son and He paid for our sin and because He was raised from the grave proving His, His gospel is true, God commands all people everywhere to repent and trust Him. Will you trust Him? If you trust Him, think about this. By God's grace, He's working in you by His gospel and He brings you to the faith to where you stop trusting yourself and your own wisdom and you turn and you receive Jesus. What happens? You are united to Christ through faith. You are cleansed from all of your sins by His sacrifice, but it's better than that. You are clothed then in His righteousness, adopted into God's family, empowered by His Spirit to live and grow in Him, and He promises to finish the work that He has begun. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, your sins are washed away. They are gone. They are as far as the east is from the west, the psalmist says. Even though you still feel your corruption. When God looks at you, if you're trusting in Jesus, He sees Jesus. Perfect record, yours.
Your sin was credited to Him and He obliterated it on the cross. So in God's eyes, you're His righteous child if you have faith in Jesus. If you don't have faith in Jesus, you're still under condemnation and need a Savior. No matter how you feel. But how are we set free? Christ redeems us. Christ sets us free. He lived for us. He died for us. He was raised for us. He's reigning for us. He's coming again for us. He never coveted once, ever. He knows about the temptations to a deeper level than we do. The only person that knows how strong sin and how strong temptation is is the one who doesn't give in to it. And he never gave in. Christ also, He doesn't just cleanse us and clothe us and we're not just adopted. We're not just justified, but we're also sanctified. Christ redeems us and He redeems our work. He transforms our hearts so that they now seek satisfaction and joy in Christ. The Gospel applied to our lives creates a God-centered life. Instead of a man-centered life. It's not just a ticket into heaven. Part of the package of the new covenant is a new heart that is growing more and more like Jesus that loves His law and wants to conform to it out of love for God because we have been so loved. That gratitude and that love that the Gospel produces fuels by the power of the Holy Spirit the life of devotion that we should have to Him. But see, Christ sets His his brothers and sisters, God sets His children free of a covetous, me-centered mind and life that ruins work. And He does it through means, and the means of His Word. So let me just give you a few suggestions before we quit. Worship, point two, worship redeems work and life. You know, if we've come to faith in Jesus and we're trusting in God and we've received Him and we don't have a cheap grace that doesn't change us, which is not real grace. If we have real grace, we now have love for Jesus that makes us want to live for Him. Our lives are transformed from a self-worshipping life to a God-worshipping life. And we grow and grow in it. I wonder why I skipped verse 6, but look at verse 6. Verse 6 hints at the answer. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. A handful of quietness. Notice it didn't say laziness. A handful of quietness of soul. I don't know about you, but I'm the worst sinner I know. And there's no way for me to have assurance when I lay my head on the pillow at night if it's going to be based on me and what I've done. Now, I'm not telling you I'm out running in the streets and doing all this bad stuff. Cindy would kill me if I did that, but <laughs> my heart, right? We need a Savior. And when we, the more we grasp His grace, the more love for Him we'll have, more grateful to Him. And then life is transformed. Yes, Sunday, Lord's Day, special worship. God calls us together to worship Him together as a people. But there's also a daily aspect to worship where I live a life of daily worship. And worship is what sets me free from covetousness and other sin and being tied here under the sun. Why? Because, look, I'm looking above the sun. My heart, when I'm thinking right, is fixed on Christ. And therefore, if I see His cross, and he, he, that happened to Him because of sin. What is sin? Violation of God's Word and His commandments. And to, this morning we're talking about covetousness. My covetousness did that to Him. Boy, that makes me hate it. If I'm thinking right, I want to be free of it. And see, Jesus sets us free. And a life of worship is the answer. A worship of God is the answer for our life of self-worship. So verse 6, better a hand, two handfuls of quietness. Where does this quietness and satisfaction come from? It comes from faith in God and trusting Him and walking in His ways. As long as you're trying to walk in your own wisdom and figure it out your own way, this quietness is not for you. It's not yours. But as you're trusting in God and taking the gospel seriously and seeking really to walk with Christ, more and more you will start to experience this quietness. I didn't say you wouldn't have a life of trouble. You will. 
Isn't that what really proves the gospel? It's when we have quietness in the midst of trouble. In our own lives anyway. We should be satisfied with an adequate amount instead of continually pressing in for more. We should be content in Christ. Christ should be our greatest treasure. See, God-centered motivation redeems work and promotes commitment, living a daily life of worship. So here's three expressions of a non-covetous heart, a heart that's been delivered. What, what should we take? See, we, we want to put off covetousness, but I don't know how many of you have tried this. Just try stopping something. You know, the biblical pattern is put off and put on. So what am I to replace my, 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 my envy, my laziness, my greed with? Well, replace it. Here's three things. The one is worship. I've already hinted at it. How about a, a, a philosophy of God is above all. Glorifying God above all. Living daily lives of worship. That means you have to get up and start your day recalibrating to his truth. Finding my joy, happiness, and contentment in God instead of focusing on me being the best and having to win. I focus on God's glory. This is where proper ambition comes in. There's an improper ambition that's focused on myself and making me more and more. But there's a proper ambition in the, in the Word of God, which is living for His glory doing everything that I do with excellence for His glory. Seek to do your very best for God. He certainly has done His very best for you. Finding my joy, my happiness, and my contentment in Him. Doing my best for God. Work hard for His glory because of His grace. See, we're born self-glorifiers and the gospel transforms us into God-glorifiers. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink and you want to just sum everything else up or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So in your job, glorify God. Aim high at the glory of God. That might cost you your job sometimes but He promised to provide for you. But in most instances, generally speaking, if my work is done to the glory of God, that means I'm going to be excellent and growingly more excellent in what I do because I'm pouring all of the strength He gives me into doing a good job at whatever He's called me to. And, and a lot of times there comes reward with that. But we're not focused there, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. The way to not be focused on self and self-promotion is to be focused on God and promoting His glory. Living for His glory. That is the overarching head of the Christian life in Christ. The glory of God. Living for the glory of God. So whatever you do, live for His glory, not yours. Secondly, see your work as a calling. See, we're, we're too surfacy with work. We don't, we don't understand what the, the, the older generations called a, the doctrine of vocation. But the Bible, when it talks about what you do, it calls it a calling. And did you know that your calling is just as important as my calling or anybody else's calling? Under God, you do the best you can do to find out how He's gifted you and shaped you. What are the desires He's put in your heart? What are the talents and abilities He's given you? And you pursue that as your work. Whatever form that takes. And it takes a while to figure that out. You know how you figure that out? You try stuff and you're like, uh. And you try something else. And you pray and you have counsel. A lot of times... Your parents can help you or brothers and sisters in Christ can help you because they see things in you that you don't see. Kids, look at me. When you're going to a, into a career, when you're going to decide what to study, don't look at the monetary list and say, who makes the most money? I'm going to be that. Because you might be a really stinky doctor or lawyer or whatever, but you might be a really good toy maker and end up... On, I mean, pick work... Try to find 
through the gifts and abilities He's given you, the calling that He's given you. And that might change a few times over your life. You might mess up seeking it a few times and then find it. My mom knew she was going to be a nurse from the age of seven. And she retired five times and couldn't quit. Why? When she died, she was still working as a nurse in her 80s, and she died by falling off a treadmill and getting a bruise and it through a clot and all that. But the point is, she knew at an early age what she wanted to be, and that desire had coincided with the way God had made her. And yes, He delivered her from the tobacco farm, even though her mean stepmother told her she'd never do it. But what is it? Find what God has made you for, what He's created you for. Don't look for the most money. Find your calling. I can look around the room and promise you, don't any of you try to be the center of the Los Angeles Lakers. You're not gifted for that. <laughs> you see what I mean? God has created you a certain way with certain gifts and abilities, and He will guide you with that to what He's got for you. Don't value money the most, though. Value Him the most and let Him lead you. <coughs> Colossians 3.23 and 24 says this, and this is my main point of this section, work for the Lord, not yourself. If you're a Marine, you be the best Marine you can be and follow Christ. Don't violate Christ's commands to be a better Marine. Or Navy person. Or doctor. Or well, you fill in the blank. Colossians says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, including yourself. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Christian, in your job, overarchingly, main thing, daily worship, focused on God's glory, you are serving Christ in whatever you do. No matter how the world sees different jobs, in your job you are very important. Honor God in that job. Worship Him on a daily basis. Submit to His calling in your life. Find your joy in Him. Here's the third one. You're not going to like this one. You probably will if you're a Christian. Love God. And, no. <laughs> it's hard though. This is, this is another one that cuts us crossways. My, my last suggestion is own nothing. Own nothing. Don't own anything. Own nothing. Be a steward of everything. It doesn't mean you don't buy a house or a car or all of that, but you're, you're, see yourself as a steward of everything, that God owns it all. He's entrusted a certain amount of it to you, and you glorify Him with what He's entrusted to you. Not everybody will be rich, but if you turn out through glorifying God with a lot, God doesn't say give it all away. He says be ready to share. Be generous, right? You who have not much, Please don't be greedy and envious and hating the people that do. Go get a job. Maybe you need a better one. Maybe you're not lining up with God's calling. I don't know. I know one thing. A lot of these people running around the streets, if they had a job, wouldn't a lot of this stuff be going on. You can tell I want to say way more than I'm saying this morning. <laughs> I will one day, probably. But own nothing. Have the conviction that it's all the Lord's. Even your kids are a stewardship to you. Please don't seek your joy, satisfaction, purpose, meaning in life in your children. Above the sun. That's hard. Okay, and then grandparents, especially grandkids. We transform when we get grandkids, don't we? Everything is the Lord's and you are a steward and manager of it all. He has entrusted it to you, so glorify Him with it. That changes everything. That's the way the early church operated. They didn't see anything. You read Acts. You remember Acts? We, we studied that. They didn't see anything that they had as belonging to them. And they were willing to sell their investment property or whatever if it meant feeding and providing for their brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not telling you you have to sell your investment property. Please read the story. 
But they didn't see anything as belonging to them. They saw themselves as stewards. Deuteronomy 10, 14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heaven, the earth, and most of the things that are in it. There's that word again. He owns it all. I mean, when the Bible says he, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it doesn't mean he's a big cattle rancher. He owns it all. Let that set you free in one sense. And trust Him. If He owns it all, and if He sent His Son to die for your sins, the Bible says He will hold no good thing from you. And He promises if you'll seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, everything you need will be supplied. It won't be supplied through you being lazy, but for you living for, for His glory and worshiping Him. And yes, my phone's ringing. <laughs> Happens to everybody, right? <laughs> Work as a steward. Work hard while focused on His glory and not gain. And trust Him to provide what you need. He promises to do so. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. What's the first outflow of that? I shall not want. I will not be in want. I will not be in need. Now, wants are not needs, and we have to straighten all that out, right? He promises to give us everything we need on a daily basis to live for and glorify Him. He might or might not give you more tomorrow. He might take some of it away. But even if He does, there's sufficient resources in Christ to have joy. So instead of being envious and lazy and greedy, be worshipful. Be working as a calling Devoting your, your job, your work to Christ and be a steward who trusts God who owns everything and is in it for our good. See, the gospel turns Mr. Greed into Mr. Glory. God's glory. We are commanded to repent of all of our covetousness and joyfully live for His glory. He has purchased that for us if we will trust Him. We are commanded to be satisfied in Him and make Him our only God to live for Him in Jesus Christ, who is truly life, who died for us and was buried and raised the third day for us, who is reigning and coming again for us, who has our hope and our happiness, our treasure and our joy, if we're thinking rightly. I'm closing with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, and I will leave this with you. How do we look above the sun? How, do we, how are we delivered from the misery here, especially related to work this morning, how can we not be envious and, and lazy or greedy? How can we not be covetous? Here's what Charles Spurgeon said briefly. Some of you are laboring after happiness. You think to find it in gain, seeking for rest in the abundance of your beloved wealth. Ah, you will never have enough till you get Christ. But when you have Him, you will be full to the brim. Contentment is the particular jewel of the beloved of our Lord Jesus. The soul is insatiable till it finds the Savior. Then it leans on His bosom and enters into perfect peace. Lean hard on Him. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, be our vision. May our hearts be focused on you. Trusting you, resting in you, believing you, seeking you, living for you according to your word. May we be people who live for your glory. Who do our very best in our calling because we're working for you who see and know that you really own all things and you have entrusted us with the stewardship. Help us to be faithful. Set us free from the stress and the misery of trying to gut it out on our own. Cleanse us from our sin. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died for all of our covetousness as well as everything else. Make us more worshipful and less covetous, more restful and less in stress as we trust you 
and rest in you. Keep us from ruining our work with covetousness. Help us to glorify you in it. Some of us this morning, as of yet, still just really don't trust you. We're still walking in our own wisdom. We want a ticket into heaven, but we don't want you ruling our lives. That is a formula for misery, and I pray that you'd set any of us free who are walking and leaning on our own wisdom. Some of us just flat have rejected you and don't want you and haven't, haven't listened to half what's been said. But I pray that the gospel seeds would explode in these hearts, that they would turn and trust in Jesus. Lord, those of us who know you, those of us even who are spiritually healthy, we are not content with our level of growth and grace. We still see the remnants. We still see the temptation, the pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil towards this world. Help us to get up and to go to bed with you on our hearts and minds. Having our hearts reset to your glory, knowing that is for our good. Growing in our faith, more and more walking by faith and not by sight. In everything we do, may we worship you. May we rest in you. Work for you. Trust you. Lord, we look to the cross and the cross helps us see that, Lord, we can trust you. You promise to provide. You will withhold nothing good. So help our hearts to be tied not to what we don't have. Help us not to be desiring for more than enough. But help us with the Apostle Paul to learn to be content in whatever situation you have put us in knowing that you are sufficient at that time if we will just look to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for our sin and for being raised from the grave, for reigning for us in the promise of coming again someday, not to condemn us, but to complete your work of salvation that you've begun. Set us free to love and live for you. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.